Section six of Members of the Family by Owen Wister. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter five The Gift Horse Part one High up the mountain amid white winter I sat, and looked far down where still the yellow autumn stayed, looked at Wind River shrunk to map size, a basking valley, a drowsy country, tawny and warm, winding southeastward away to the tawny plain, and there dissolving with air and earth in one deep, hazy, golden sleep. Somewhere in that slumbrous haze beyond the buttes and utmost foothills, and burrowed into the vast unfeatured level, lay my problem, Still Hunt Spring. I had inquired much about Still Hunt Spring. Every man seemed to know of it, but no man you talked with had been to it. Description of it always came to me at second hand. Scipio I accept. Scipio assured me he had once been to it. It was no easy spot to find. A man might pass it close and come back and pass it on the other side, yet never know it was at his elbow, so they said. The Indians believed a supernatural thing about it that it was not there every day, and few of them would talk readily about it. Yet it was they who had first showed it to the white man. And because they repeated concerning a valley two hundred feet deep, a mile long and a quarter mile wide at its widest, this haunted legend of presence and absence, its name now possessed my mind. Like a strain of music, it recurred to my thoughts each day of my November hunting in the mountains of Wind River. Still hunt spring. Down there, somewhere, in that drowsy distance, it lay. One trail alone led into it, from one end of the secret ravine to the other, they said, grew a single file of trees, lank and tall, as if they stood on stilts to see out over the top, and at the further end was a spring, small, cold, and sweet. Though it swelled up in the midst of sagebrush desert, there was no alkali, they said, in that water. Still hunt spring. That night I announced to my two camp companions my new project. Next summer I should see still hunt spring for myself. Alone? Scipio inquired. Not if you will come. It is no tenderfoot's trail. Then if I find it, I shall cease to be a tenderfoot. Go on, said Scipio with indulgence. We'll not let you stay lost. It is no tenderfoot's place, the cook now muttered. Then you have been there? I asked him. He shook his head. I am in this country for my health, he drawled. On this a certain look passed between my companions, and a certain laugh. A sudden suspicion came to me, which I kept to myself until next afternoon, when we had broken this camp, where no game save health seemed plentiful, and were down the mountains at Horse Creek and Wind River. I don't believe there's any such place as Still Hunt Spring. This I said, sitting with a company in the cabin known later on the postal route map as Dubois. The nearest post office then was seventy-five miles away. No one spoke until a minute after, I suppose, 
when a man slowly remarked, Some call that place Blind Spring. He was presently followed by another, speaking equally slowly. I've heard it called Arapaho Spring. Still Hunt Spring is right. This was a heavy, rosy-faced man of hearty and capable appearance. His clothes were strong and good, made of whipcord, but his maroon-colored straw hat so late in the season was the noticeable point in his dress. His voice was assertive, having in it something of authority, if not of menace. Some claim there's such a place, he continued, eyeing me steadily and curiously, and some claim there's not. Here he made a pause. But I tell you there is. He still held his eye upon me with no friendliness. Were they all merely playing on my tenderfoot credulity, or what was it? I was framing a retort when sounds of trouble came from outside. "'Man down in the corral!' exclaimed somebody. "'It's that wild horse!' Scipio met us running. "'No doctor here?' he panted. "'McDonough has broke his leg, looks like.' But the doctor was seventy-five miles away, like the post office. "'Who's McDonough?' inquired the rosy-faced man with the straw hat. A young fellow from Colorado, they told him, a new settler on Wind River this summer. He had taken up a ranch on North Fork and built him a cabin. Hard luck if he had broken his leg. He had a bunch of horses, was going to raise horses. He had good horses. Hard luck. We found young McDonough lying in the corral, propped against a neighbor's kindly knee. The wild horse was snorting and showing us red nostrils and white eyes in a far corner. He had reared and fallen backward while being roped, and the bars had prevented dodging in time. Dirt was ground into McDonough's flaxen hair, the skin was tight on his cheeks, and his lips were as white as his large, thick nails. But he smiled at us, and his strange blue eyes twinkled with the full spark of undaunted humor. "'Ain't I a son of a blank?' he began, and shook his head over himself and his clumsiness. Further speech was stopped by violent retching, and I was enough of a doctor to fear that this augured a worse hurt than a broken leg. But no blood came up, and he was soon talking to us again, applying to himself sundry jocular epithets which were very well in that rough corral, but must stay there. He was lifted to the only bed in the cabin, no sound escaping him, though his lips remained white, and when he thought himself unobserved he shut his eyes, but kept them open and twinkling at any one's approach. They were strange, perplexed eyes, evidently large, but deep-set, their lids screwed together. Later that evening I noticed that he held his playing cards close to them, and slightly to one side. Scipio called him skewbald, but I could see no such defect. He was not injured internally, it proved later, but his right leg was broken above the ankle. We had to cut his boot off, so swollen already was the limb. The heavy man with the straw hat advised getting him to the hospital at the post without delay, 
and regretted he himself had not come up the river in his wagon. He could have given the patient a lift. With this he departed upon a tall roan horse, with an air about him of business and dispatch uncommon in these parts. Wind River horsemen mostly looked and acted as if there was no such thing as being behind time, there being no such thing as time. Who is he? I asked, looking after the broad back of whipcord and the unseasonable straw hat. All were surprised. What? Not know Lem Speed? Biggest cattleman in the country? Store and a bank in Lander? House in Salt Lake? Wife in Los Angeles? Son at Yale? Up here looking after his interests? I pursued. Up here looking after his interests. My exact words were repeated in that particular tone which showed I was again left out of something. What's the matter with my questions? I asked. What's the matter with our answers? said a man. Truly, mine had been a tenderfoot speech, and I sat silent. McDonough's white lips regained no color that night, and the skin grew tighter over the bones of his face as the hours wore on. He was proof against complaining, but no stoic endurance could hide such pain as he was in. Beneath the sunburn on his thick hand the flesh was blanched, yet never did he once ask if the hay-wagon was not come for him. They had expected to get him off in it by seven, but it did not arrive until ten minutes before midnight. They had found it fifteen miles up the river instead of two. Sitting up, twisted uncomfortably, he played cards until one of the company, with that lovable tact of the frontier, took the cards from him, remarking, You'll lose all you've got, and with his consent, played his hand and made bets for him. McDonough then sank flat, watching the game with his perplexed, half-shut eyes. What I could do for him, I did. It was but little. Finding his leg burning and his hand cold, I got my brandy, their whiskey was too doubtful, and laid wet rags on the leg, keeping them wet. He accepted my offices and my brandy without a sign. This was like most of them, and did not mean that he was not grateful, but only that he knew no way to say so. Laudanum alone among my few drugs seemed applicable, and he took twenty drops with dumb acquiescence, but it brought him neither sleep nor doze. More I was afraid in my ignorance to give him, and so he bore, unpalliated, what must have become well-nigh agony by midnight, when we lifted him into the wagon. So useless had I been, and his screwed-up eyes, with their valiant sparkle and his stoic restraint, made me feel so sorry for him, that while they were making his travelling bed as soft as they could, I scrawled a message to the army surgeon at the post. Do everything you can for him, I wrote, and as I doubt if he has five dollars to his name, hold me responsible. This I gave McDonough without telling him its contents. Off they drove him in the cold, mute night. I could hear the heavy jolts of the wagon a long way. 
Six rocky fords lay between here and Washakie, and Scipio thus summed up the seventy-five miles the patient had before him. I don't expect he'll improve any on the road. In new camps among other mountains, I now tried my luck through deeper snow, thicker ice, and colder days, coming out at length lean and limber and ravenous for every good that flesh is heir to, yet reluctant to turn eastward to that city life which would unfailingly tarnish the bright hard steel of health. Of Still Hunt Spring I spoke no more, but thought often, and with undiscouraged plans to visit it. I mentioned it but once again. Old Washakie, chief of the Shoshone tribe, did me the honor to dine with me at the military post which bore his name. Words cannot describe the face and the presence of that old man. Ragged clothes abated nothing of his dignity. A past like the world's beginning looked from his eyes. His jaw and long white hair made you silent as tall mountains make you silent. After we had dined, and I had made him presents, he drew pictures in the sand for me with his finger. Not as I expected, almost to my disappointment, this Indian betrayed no mystery concerning the object of my quest. Eh, he said. It was like a shrug. No hard find. You want see him? Water pretty good, yes. Trees heap big. You make ranch, maybe. When he heard my desire was merely to see Still Hunt Spring, I am not certain he understood me, or, if so, believed me. Eh! he exclaimed again, and laughed, because I laughed. You go this way, he said, beginning to trace a groove in the sand. So. He laid a match here and there, and pinched up little hillocks, and presently he had it all set forth. I tore off a piece of wrapping paper from the stove, and copied the map carefully with his comments. The place was less distant than I had thought. I thanked him, spoke of returning after one snow to see him, and still hunt spring. Eh, he shrugged. Then he mounted his pony and rode off without any good-bye, Indian fashion. I counted it a treasure I had got from him. McDonough's leg had knit well, and I met him on crutches crossing the parade-ground. He was discharged from hospital, and, I will not deny it, his mere nod of greeting seemed somewhat too scant acknowledgment of the good will I had certainly tried to show him. Yet his smile was very pleasant, and while I noted his face, no longer embrowned with sun and riding, but pale from confinement, I noted also the unsubdued twinkle in his perplexed eyes. After all, why should I need thanks? As he hobbled away with his yellow hair sticking out in a cowlick under his hat behind, I smiled at my own smallness and wished him good luck heartily. The doctor, whose hospitable acquaintance I had made on first coming through the post this year, would not listen to my paying him anything for his services to McDonough. Army surgeons were expected, he said, to render what aid they could to civilians, as well as to soldiers in the hospital. He good-humouredly forbade all the remonstrance I attempted. 
when civilians could pay him themselves he let them do so according to their means it was just as well that the surrounding country should not grow accustomed to treating uncle sam as a purely charitable institution mcdonough had offered to pay when he could what he could afford the doctor had thought it due to me to let him know the contents of my note and that no such arrangement could be allowed and what said he to that i asked nothing as usual disgusted perhaps not in the least his myopic eyes were just as cheerful then as they were the second before he fainted away under my surgical attentions he scorned ether poor fellow he's a good fellow i exclaimed hm went the doctor doubtfully know anything against him i asked know his kind all the way from assiniboine to lowell barracks it has made you hard to please i declared hm went the doctor again think he'll not pay you may may not well good-bye cynic good-bye tenderfoot the next morning had there been time to catch the doctor i could have proved to him that he was hard to please at the moment of my stepping into the early stage i had a surprise mcdonough had been at breakfast at the hotel and had said nothing to me a nod sufficed him as usual it was as much social intercourse as was customary at breakfast or indeed at any of the meals the stage rattled up as i sat and i its only passenger rose and spoke a farewell syllable to mcdonough who repeated his curt nod my next few minutes were spent in paying the bill seeing my baggage roped on behind the stage and in bidding scipio good-bye one foot was up to get into the vehicle when a voice behind said so you're going there was mcdonough hobbled out after me to the fence he stood awkwardly at the open gate smiling his pleasant smile i replied yes and still he stood coming next year again i said yes and again he stood silent smiling and awkward then it was uttered the difficult word which shyness had choked if you come you shall have the best horse on the river before i could answer he was hobbling back to the hotel thus from his heart his untrained lips at last had spoken i drove away triumphing over the doctor and in my thoughts my holiday passed in review my camps and scipio and still hunt spring and most of all this fellow with his broken leg and perplexed eyes at lander they said had i come two days earlier i should have had the company of lem speed so he and his maroon straw hat came into my thoughts too he had started for california i heard from the driver whose society i sought on the box he assured me that lem speed was rich but that i carried better whiskey trouble was due in this country he said after more of my whiskey pretty near the sort of trouble they were having on powder river for his part he did not wonder that poor men got tired of rich men not that he objected to riches 
but only to hogs. He had nothing against Lem Speed. Temptation to steal stock had never come his way, but he could understand how poor men might get tired of the big cattlemen. Some poor men, anyhow. Yes, trouble was sure due, what brought Lem Speed up here so long after the beef roundup. Still, he guessed he hadn't told Lem Speed anything that would hurt a poor fella. Lem Speed had claimed he was up here about his bank. If so, why had he gone up Wind River and all around Big Muddy and over to the M-Bar? The bank was not there. No, sir. The big cattleman was going to demonstrate over here as they had on the Dry Cheyenne and Box Elder. I perceived demonstration to be the driver's word for the sudden hanging of somebody without due process of law, and I expressed a doubt as to its being needed here. I had heard nothing of cattle or horses being stolen. This he received in silence, presently repeating that Lem Speed hadn't got anything from him. He broke off this subject for mines, and after mines we touched on topic after topic, until I confided to him the story of McDonough. Of course, I would never accept the horse I finished. Why not? Well, well, it would hardly be suitable. Please yourself, said the driver curtly and looking away. Such treatment would not please me. You mean never look a gift horse in the mouth, as we say? I don't know as I ever said that. A steep gully in the road obliged him to put on the brake and release it before he continued. I'd not consider I had the right to do a man a good turn if I wasn't willing for him to do me one. But I really did nothing for him. Please yourself. Maybe folks are different east. Well, I ended laughing, I understand you, and I am not the hopeless snob I sound like, and I'll take his horse next summer, if you will take a drink now. We finished our journey in amity. The intervening months, whatever drafts they made upon my Rocky Mountain health, weakened my designs not a whit. Late June found me again in the stagecoach, taking with eagerness that drive of thirty-two jolting hours. Roped behind were my camp belongings, and treasured in my pocket was Chief Washakie's trail to Still Hunt Spring. My friend, the driver, was on the downstage, and so, to my regret, we could not resume our talk where we had left it. But I again encountered at once that atmosphere of hinted doings and misdoings which had encompassed me as I went out of the country. At the station called Crook's Gap, I came upon new rumors of Lem Speed, and asked had he come about his bank again. You and him acquainted? inquired a man on a horse, and on my answering that I was not, he cursed Lem Speed slow and long looking about for contradiction. Then, as none present took it up, he rode sullenly away, leaving silence behind him. When I alighted next afternoon at the Washakie post-trader's store, and walked back to the private office of the building, whither I was wont always to repair, 
What I saw in that private room, through a sort of lattice which screened it off from the general public, was a close-drawn knot of men round a table, and on a chair a maroon-colored straw hat. Rather hastily the post-trader came out, and shaking my hand warmly, drew me away from the lattice. After a few cordial questions he said, "'Come back this evening.' "'Does he never get a new hat?' I asked. "'Hat? Who? What?' Uh, "'Oh, yes, to be sure,' laughed the post-trader. "'I'll tell him he ought to.' I sought out the doctor, soon learning from him that McDonough had paid him for his services. But this had not softened his opinion of the young fellow, though he had heard nothing against him, nor even any mention of his name. He repeated his formula, that he had known McDonough's kind all the way from Assiniboine to Lowell Barracks, whereupon I again called him Cynic, and he retorted with Tenderfoot, and thus amicably I left him for my postponed gossip with the post-trader. Him I found hospitable, but preoccupied, holding a long cigar unlighted between his taciturn lips. Each topic that I started soon died away. My eastern news, my summer plans to ramble with Scipio across the divide on Gros Ventre, and Snake, the proposed extension of the Yellowstone Park. Everything failed. That was quite a company you had this afternoon, I said, reaching the end of my resources. Yes, nice gentleman, uh, yes and he rolled the long, unlighted cigar between his lips. Cattlemen, I suppose? Cattlemen, yes. Business all right, I hope? Well, no worse than usual. Here again we came to an end, and I rose to go. Seen your friend McDonough yet? said he, still sitting. Why, how do you know he's a friend of mine? Says so every time he comes into the post. Well, the doctor's all wrong about him, I exclaimed, and gave my views. The post-trader watched me in his tilted chair with a half-whimsical smile, rolling his eternal cigar, and I finished with the story of the horse. Then the smile left his face. He got up slowly, and slowly took a number of turns around his office, pottered with some papers on his desk, and finally looked at me again. Tell me if he does, he said. Offer the horse? I shall not remind him, and I should take it only as a loan. You tell me if he does, repeated the post-trader, now smiling again, and so we parted. I wonder what he didn't say, I thought, as I proceeded to the hotel, for he had plainly pondered some remarks and decided upon silence. Between them, he and the doctor had driven me to a strong hope that McDonough would vindicate my opinion of him by making good his word. At breakfast next morning at the hotel, one of the invariable characters at such breakfasts, an unshaven person in tattered overalls with rope-scarred fists and grimy knuckles, to me unknown, asked, uh, Figure on meeting your friend, McDonough? Not if he doesn't figure on meeting me. 
They all took quiet turns at looking at me until some one remarked, " You ain't been in town lately." " I'm glad his leg's all right," I said. " Oh, his leg's all right." The tone of this caused me to look at them. " Well, I hope he's all all right." Not immediately came the answer, " By latest reports he was enjoying good health." Truly they were a hopeless people to get anything direct from. Indirectness is by some falsely supposed to be a property of only the highly civilized, but these latter merely put a brighter and harder polish on it. That afternoon I drove with my camp things out of town in a buggy, very different from the Eastern vehicle which bears this name, and the next afternoon between Dinwiddie and Red Creek, on a waste stretch high above the river, who should join me but McDonough. He was riding down the mountain apparently from nowhere, and my pleasure at seeing him was keen. His words were few and halting, as they had been the year before, and in his pleasant round face the blue eyes twinkled, screwed up and as perplexed as ever. I abstained from more than glancing at the fine sorrel that he rode, lest I should seem to be hinting. Water pretty low for this season, he said. Was there not much snow? Next to none, and went early. I turned from my direct course and camped at his cabin on North Fork. What's your hurry? he said next morning when I was preparing to go. There was no hurry. Those days had no hurry in them, and I blessed their memory for it. I sat on a stump, smoking a Missouri meerschaum and unfolding to him my plans. To the geography of my route he listened intently, very intently. So you're going to keep over the other side of the mountains, he said. Even to Idaho, I answered, and home that way. Not back this way? Not this year. He thought a little while. You're settled as to that. Quite. He rose and put some wood into the stove in his cabin. Then he returned to me where I sat on the stump. Sure you're quite settled you'll keep on the west side of the divide? Goodness, I laughed. Why should I lie to you? Again he pondered in silence, and I could not imagine what he had in his mind. What had my being east or being west of the mountains to do with him? He now jerked his head toward the corral. Like him? he inquired gruffly. It was the sorrel horse that he meant, and I perceived that it was standing saddled. I said nothing. The fellow's embarrassment embarrassed me. Like him? he repeated. Mm, looks good to me, I replied, adopting his gruffness. He rose and brought the horse to me. Get on. Hello! You've got my saddle on him. Get on. He ain't the one that broke my leg. I obeyed. Thus was the gift offered and accepted. I rode the horse down and up the level river bottom. How shall I get him back to you, I asked. McDonough's face fell. You'll be all right in the east, he protested. I smiled. No, my good friend, not that. Let me send him back with the outfit. 
We compromised on this, and I caught trout for the rest of the day, also shooting some young sage chickens. The sorrel proved a fine animal. Again McDonough delayed my departure. " I can broil those chickens fine," he said, " and — you'll not be back this way." He would not look at me as he said this, but busied himself with the fire. He was lonely and liked my company, and I couldn't say no. Dense doctor, I reflected, not to have been warmed by this nature. But later this friendless fellow touched my heart more acutely. A fine thought had come to me during the evening — to leave my wagon here, to leave a note for Scipio at the E. A. outfit, to descend Wind River to the Sand Gulch, strike Washakie's trail to the northeast of Crow Heart Butte, and on my vigorous sorrel find Still Hunt Spring by myself. The whole ride need take but two days. I think I must have swelled with pride at the prospect of this secret achievement to be divulged when accomplished to the admiring dwellers on Wind River. But I intended to have the pleasure of divulging it to McDonough at once, and I forthwith composed a jeering note to Scipio Le Moyne. Esteemed friend, this would anger him immediately, come and find me at Still Hunt Spring, if you don't fear getting lost. If you do, avoid the risk, and I will tell you all about it Friday evening. Yours, Tenderfoot. I pushed this over to McDonough, who was practicing various cuts with a pack of cards. That will make Scipio jump, I said. Somewhat to my disappointment, it did not have this or any effect upon McDonough. He held the paper close to his eyes, shutting them still more to follow the writing, and handed it back to me, saying merely, Pretty good. I'll leave it over at the E.A. for him, I explained. He thinks I'm afraid to go there alone. Ah, yes, pretty good, said McDonough, as if I were venturing nothing. Was all Wind River going to treat it as such a trifle? Or could it be that McDonough alone among white men and red hereabouts knew nothing of the mystery and menace by which Still Hunt Spring was encircled? End of chapter 5, part 1